Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 51? I think it's safe to say Psalm 51 is one of the most beloved psalms in the Psalter. And for many of you, for myself included, it has been a balm of comfort. If you've ever struggled with the effects of sin, the aftermath of sin, if you've ever questioned, can God forgive me for how I've messed up? Now, this psalm is a reminder that, yes, God forgives us even after the most egregious sins. It's a reminder to us, the words of Jesus, that all those that the Father would give to him would come to him, and he would never cast them out. And that is the truth we need to hear continually in our lives when we do struggle with sin and wonder, can God forgive me? We know the story of David. David lusted after Bathsheba, desired her, had an affair, committed adultery with her. And when she became pregnant, to cover his sin, he had her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. An egregious sin, horrible sin. We, we look at that. And we think, so pridefully, how could David do that? I never would do that. One thing is that sometimes is popular to say is that <clears throat> I'm not David, and so we shouldn't compare ourselves to David. Here's the wonderful truth for you, that if you and I aren't David, then this psalm doesn't speak to us. But praise the Lord that we are in need of God's grace, just like David. Let us hear this word. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God. Just merely reading this psalm impacts our hearts, doesn't it? As we consider how these words came about after David's great sin, he was confronted by Nathan the prophet through a parable. And David convicted, cut straight to the heart, when Nathan said, you are the man, composed this sometime afterwards. He begins with a need for mercy because of his great sin. He asks God, have mercy on me. Notice this plea for God to have mercy to him is not according to David's worth, not according to David's station in life, not according to anything that David could have earned, but rather his appeal to mercy is according to to God's steadfast love, and according to God's abundant mercy. He appeals to God from the very character and the very nature of God. David removes himself from the situation. He doesn't bring up the memory that, uh, God, you promised me an eternal throne. I'm pretty important to your kingdom. But rather, he says, have mercy on me according to your mercy. That is to say that, God, you have revealed yourself as merciful. You revealed yourself as forgiving. You have revealed yourself as one that shows steadfast love to a thousand generations. So you, God, will you have mercy to me out of your mercy? The same God that he stands before as judge is the same God that he appeals to for mercy. Think about that for a moment. He's guilty before God, the lawgiver. He's guilty before God, the judge. He is guilty before God as the righteous one and the one who uh, has uh, felt the sins against him. And he acknowledges that And it's that God that he goes to and says, will you have mercy on me? Look what he says. According to your mercy, will you blot out my transgressions? Blot them out. Remove them. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David, as king as we've seen kings in Israel's history, when confronted with sin, did not always repent, did they? They're the king. What consequences does a king face? You're the ruler over the people. You have a palace. 
I'll tell you the kind that do not respond to a rebuke of Nathan are those that do not know the Lord. David knew the Lord, and it brought him to his knees because he realized he was in need of cleansing. He was in need of forgiveness. He was in need of mercy, and he owns it. Cleanse me from my sin. He acknowledges his sin before God, and he has this confession of guilt. He says, for I know, and this is an intimate term, I know my transgressions. Other than God, you are the only one that truly knows your transgressions. God knows them better than you know them. God knows how guilty you are more than you know how guilty you are. But no one else does. Because your heart is the one that's testifying against you. If you know the Lord, if you know the Lord and you are in a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it is in your heart that your heart testifies against you of your guilt. He speaks of this in a word that is of a very intimate knowledge of his transgressions. And he says this, and my sin is ever before me. That is, that his sin is in front of him, it's in his sight, and his sin is always pressing in on him. But there's something else about this that we have to recognize. Bathsheba was now always before him. His sin was always before him. Every time he sees now his wife, until this point, he's reminded of his guilt. Not only is his heart testifying against him, but his administration of his kingdom is affected and impacted by it. The war and the battles they were at had a direct consequence because of this. His sin is literally always before him. So you think when we, when we commit sin, there's the testimony of our heart against us, but David will reveals something else to us, and that is the consequences of our sin are always pressing in around us. Every day that David woke up, he was confronted with the fact that he had committed adultery and he had murdered a man that was innocent. His sin pressed in on him. He knew it well. So look what he says. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now when you think about what everything we just, we just said, it killed Uriah, committed adultery with Bathsheba, Why does he say this then? Against you, you only have I sinned. Because I'm pretty sure Uriah was sinned against. Bathsheba was sinned against. The nation of Israel was sinned against. David's wives were sinned against. David's children were sinned against. The people that looked up to David his military commanders, the soldiers, they were sinned against. 
But David says something here so interesting. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. It's interesting if you go back to 2 Samuel and just recount part of the backstory. In chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, in verse 25, after he receives the news of Uriah's death, he sends back this messenger. The messenger says to David, or David says to this messenger to say to Joab to return this news to Joab. He says, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Who's David concerned with over his sin here? Joab. He's concerned how Joab will judge him. When you look at verse 27, it says, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So this whole time, David's concerned, not with God, but with man. That's why he tries to cover it up. I don't want anyone to see what I did. So I'm going to cover it up. Joab, don't judge me for this. Don't let this in your sight be evil. So David was not concerned with God. (laughs) He's king. God chose him for an eternal throne. He's not concerned with God. He's concerned by what people will think about him. And when Nathan the prophet confronts him, chapter 12 and verse 9, what he says, he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Notice how the word of the Lord brings a corrective to David. What you have done is evil in God's sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. In other words, it's just as if you had held the sword to his head. You killed him. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. This is the Lord and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Notice how God says and identifies Bathsheba not by name, but by her husband, Uriah. What a reminder and wake-up call to David that his sin was against God. Yes, he did sin against the others. The whole point is here for David to say, against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, is for his acknowledgement to say, I wasn't thinking about you. I was trying to hide this from people. Now, Lord, I am taking this to you because you have confronted me with this, and I am sinful. 
This is David's recognition when he says, I have sinned against you, God. It's to say, I'm not concerned about what man thinks about me. I'm concerned by what God thinks of me. That's why he writes these words. And notice what he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Is there ever a time where God is not justified in his words? Is there ever a time where God is not blameless in his judgment? He's always justified in his words. He is always blameless in his judgment. Any words of judgment from God are right because of our wrong. That is how it always is. So after this admission of sin, David continues not only to go and look at his mistakes that he's made, but he shows us something of human nature. It's not that I, I sin, it's that I'm a sinner. I sin because I'm sinful. Sin pours out of me. He says that in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born in sin. We inherit Adam's sin. We are guilty. One commentator, James Hamilton, says, quote, We were born in sin having been conceived by sinners, and we live in a world pervaded by sin. When does that sin nature begin? When we begin. From the moment of birth, we inherit the sin of Adam. And he acknowledges this. Oh Lord, it is... Deeper than just that I sinned, I'm corrupt all the way through. He goes on to say this perplexing statement, which almost seems to me out of place until you really grasp what he's saying. He says this in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Meaning, this is something, Lord, that you have revealed inwardly. What God desires is truth inwardly. David could not just come and confess with lip service his sins. What God wanted of him was something of truth inwardly to be taking place. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart is to say that God taught him the truth that I was brought forth in iniquity, that I am sinful, uh, that I have a sin nature. God reveals this to him, that he doesn't want mere lip service, but he wants his heart. How often is it that when we go to the Lord after some sort of sin, maybe we're 
We're, we have conviction. Maybe we've got caught or trapped up in our sin. And part of it's a mixture of guilt. Part of it's a really, truly conviction. And we, we, we do want the Lord to forgive us, but yet we, it's kind of mixed, You know what encourages me is what the Lord desires and requires of us inwardly we can't do. You can't. You cannot love God enough for what He has required of you. You cannot live an obedient life enough to gain God's favor. But I read these words of Jesus In John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he did it perfectly. There was never a time where the Lord Jesus' heart was mixed with sin. Inward truth of heart. That which we lack, the Lord Jesus had, has on our behalf. Whereas my heart is mixed, Jesus' desire was always to do his Father's will, and he did it perfectly. That's our hope. That's where our forgiveness lies, is in him. And David looks to God for that forgiveness, for that cleansing. He says it in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You think of the songs, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But he's asking the Lord to cleanse him. Purge me with hyssop. There's a lot of questions of what that means. Was that the sprinkling of atoning blood? The same process was actually used to cleanse lepers, according to the Mosaic Code. So what is he referring to here, being being covered with, with blood and being cleansed? Or is he talking about being cleansed because he is like a leper? Either way, he's asking for the Lord to cleanse him of his sin. And the picture is through this Levitical sacrifice that takes place. He's pleading with the Lord to cleanse him. And look what he says. If, Lord, you wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. There's the beauty. There's the beauty. When you have been cleansed by Christ, you are no longer defiled. Does that mean that David no longer sinned? Does that mean that David was no longer a sinner? No, of course he was still a sinner. Of course he continued to sin. But it is to say before God, after God has cleansed him, he is white as snow, even after he committed adultery and murdered someone. God says, you are white as snow. That is what God does for his people is he cleanses them, that they will be pure in his sight. Only God can cleanse you. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You just pause on that for a second. When we deal with the consequences and conviction of sin that crushes us, 
Sometimes that's the part we want to avoid, but David reveals to us something very important, that that's the thing that God does to bring us to repentance, that he crushes you. And God will crush you. He will crush those that he loves for your own sake and your own good. So David just asked, continue to ask, hide your face from my sins. Normally, you think of the Aaronic prayer is to have your face shine upon me, but he's saying, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. That is, that they may be erased, that they may no longer be here. And just pause for a second and just continue to think about the cross and what we receive in Christ and how Paul writes about this very thing. In Colossians 2.14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When did my sins get removed? On the cross. They're taken. They're taken. Think of what John writes. In these words in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Many people make a, a big deal about the tenses here, and I'm not all in, entirely convinced that this is the case, but I, I will point it out as this is if we confess as active and forgive as past. If we actively confess, we, we've already seen that we have already been taken care of. And that's doctrinally absolutely true. Our life is a life of confession. We don't just confess our sins once. We continually confess and bring our sins to the Lord. Confession is part of our life and is actually a sign of life that is in us that we confess. And so David asks, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is such an interesting phrase because create is that same word that God uses for the creation of the world where he brings it out of nothing into existence. It's only used of God. He's asking God to do what no man can do. And that is to create in him a new heart. You notice he doesn't ask for God, will you clean up my heart? Will you restore my heart? Will you make my heart healthy? It's not what he asks. Will you create in me a new heart? It's a heart that would love God's word. It would be a heart that loves God's commandments. It would be a heart that loves God. He says, create in this and renew that right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, why did he say this? Because we believe David was saved. Why would he say, cast not your Holy Spirit from me? Is that possible? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament... The Holy Spirit was upon Saul to empower him for the kingship. And the Holy Spirit was removed from Saul. The Holy Spirit came upon him to empower him to do his job. 
not to regenerate him. David is asking, Lord, do not remove the power of your Holy Spirit that enables me to lead. Do not remove your spirit from me and desert me. Do not remove your spirit from me. It's amazing what he says here, cast me not from your presence. Is his desire, even though he sinned against God greatly, is to be with God. Sin, you see, reveals our heart. And sin was something that was revealed in David's life, but I think more importantly than sin revealing our heart, our response to sin reveals our eternal state. We get a glimpse of David's salvation here, that he was a repentant man. The unregenerate person will never be repentant. David's repentant because he was regenerate and he knew the Lord. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Sometimes this will get confused as, as if he had lost his salvation. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, restore to me my salvation, does he? He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And here's something that you have to know. If you are in sin against the Lord, it will zap your joy of salvation. It will zap your assurance of faith. It will zap your very life. It will wreck you. And so he's asking, he has no joy. That very joy that we're promised to have, he doesn't have it. It's been taken. And he's saying, Lord, restore that joy that I have, that you gave me, that I had because I know you. That's what he's asking for, not a a restoration of salvation. He's asking for a restoration of the joy that comes with it. And then not only that, he's also asking, he says, for a willing spirit. What is that? Lord, give me a spirit that desires to obey you. Restore to me joy and give me a desire to obey. You see, David now is no longer thinking purely about himself, but but he's thinking now about his response to God. And his faithfulness to God is dependent upon God. It's amazing what's taking place here. And he says that as a result of this, look at I'm not going to focus inwardly. He goes on in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors, Your ways and sinners will return to you. And this whole section moves into praise for God. That God would be glorified through the restoration of David. And that's, that's our ultimate goal, is that God is glorified in all things. You look at this verse, it's interesting. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You sometimes wonder, can God use me, a sinful person? I mean, there's people out there that know what I have done. There's people out there that have seen and done the things that I have done and been there with me in them. How could God use me 
such a wretched, sinful person to then go and tell other sinners about God's mercy? David says, you can. That God can use you for that. You've sinned, you've messed up, you've, been, you've really blown it. Okay, we've covered it. God can forgive you, but can God use you? Yes, he can. Can God use me? Can God use you? Yes, David says, then I will teach, your tra- teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. David's saying, I, a sinful person, will teach others about sin. You might wonder, is this hypocritical? Without repentance, yeah. Without repentance, it is hypocritical. But what have we seen of David? He's repentant. He's asking for forgiveness. He's asking for the Lord to give him, by his grace, a willing spirit to obey. He goes on, deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Why does he say blood guiltiness? Well, because he murdered, he committed adultery. What was the penalty for those crimes? Death. Saying, deliver me from that. And David acknowledges that justice of the law requires his execution. And it's interesting, David asks for this forgiveness... Will you deliver me from just payment of the law? And then he calls God still righteous. How do those two things work together? How do those things work together? It, how can God be righteous and yet forgive us of sins? That's the question. That applies to every single individual that has ever lived, not just to David. How can God that is holy, that demands justice, otherwise he's not holy, otherwise he's not righteous, how can a holy, righteous God be righteous? How can he not be a corrupt judge and forgive me? Doesn't someone have to take the punishment on our behalf? You see, that's the beauty of the gospel, is God is righteous because justice for David's sin is served in the cross. How could God be righteous and forgive someone that murdered and committed adultery? Because Jesus took that sin upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. What love of our Savior. What love of the Father to send his Son to pay the price for murderers and adulterers like us. What mercy. He says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. David's not ashamed here, but he's rejoicing of what God has done for him, and he, he will sing. And he goes on to say, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Here's the thing. There was no sacrifice or burnt offering for adultery or murder. There wasn't one that David could give. 
he's entirely dependent upon God's forgiveness of him. He couldn't offer that. So he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise these things. What is this saying to us? What does God want from us? He wants our heart. He wants a repentant heart before him. And David then from this, again, it's amazing how he so outwardly focuses on other people after he wasn't thinking about other people. He says in verse 18, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, David understood his unique place in history. The king's responsibility was to ensure that worship was rightly taking place. That justice was taking place. He was the king. If the king experiences the wrath of God, what happens to worship? David is asking that the Lord would restore right worship in Jerusalem. He recognizes that the people are dependent upon him. Lord, restore me that worship might be restored. It's an amazing confession of his and desire. If David was taken out, it would have had a direct impact upon the very nation that he sinned against. And now he is pleading on behalf of the nation that the Lord would restore right worship. You know, I want to point out a couple of things for us to think through. David nowhere states that he is deserving of forgiveness. He doesn't. He appeals entirely to the mercy of the Lord. And there's two things that this should teach us. We don't deserve forgiveness, but the Lord is merciful. And it's that recognition that I don't deserve forgiveness that is that truly broken spirit, that one that mourns and they shall be comforted, that one that is poor in spirit, because they are recognizing that because of their sin, they are separated from God. They do not deserve forgiveness. But it also teaches us something else. We do not deserve God's mercy. We do not earn God's mercy. But yet God gives it to us. How then should we be merciful with others? You see, when we look at God's mercy, we see how we benefit from it. But what do we learn from it also in how we treat our brothers and sisters? Second thing I want us to think about is David's sin was always present before him because of his choices. We made a point of this. Bathsheba was before him continually. 
He had murdered her husband, and there was constant reminders of that. He then takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Can God take a situation born out of sin and bless it? Yes. What would we do if we saw this situation? Boy, that marriage is doomed for failure. How could that couple be together? Look at how they sinned and they started their marriage on such a rough and rocky path. Look what the Lord does with David and Bathsheba. That it's the son of Bathsheba that becomes the king. So can God take something born out of sin and bless it and it become beautiful for his glory? Yeah. Now that doesn't mean we go and test that, right? But it does mean that God makes crooked paths straight. The Lord can do that with all of us. Third, David acknowledged that death was required for his sin, but yet the death of an animal could not erase his sin. He does not appeal to sacrifice, but rather to God's mercy, knowing that God alone could provide a sacrifice for him. When we sin, we look in one direction, and that is to the cross of Christ. And when we're afflicted with our own sin, when we blow it, we go to the cross where we receive mercy, where we receive forgiveness. And when we feel like, I really messed up, can God forgive me? We have to come back to the gospel. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When David breathed his last and he's before God, a murderer, an adulterer, he was a bad parent. God can say to him, well done, my good and faithful servant. There is no more condemnation for you. Christ has taken it for you. That's the beauty of the gospel that we need daily. doesn't matter how bad we've blown it. Don't let that cripple you. Move forward. Because there is for now no longer any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus that's the promise of God's very word for you, is that there is no more condemnation. You've been set free. And praise God for it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his all-sufficient sacrifice on our behalf. We praise you that there is no longer condemnation for those that are in your beloved Son. We thank you for this psalm and how it speaks to our hearts and how it encourages us and maybe even convicts us. We praise you how it is working in our hearts even now as we reflect upon these truths. Father, if we struggle with sin or the effects of sin or the consequences of sin or whether we ever wonder whether you can love us, 
May we always look to the cross. May we always look to the Lord Jesus and there find comfort and grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen.